The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put down the balloons and listen up. <clears throat> it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 211 with guest Raymond Chem, recorded live Thursday, January 11th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man with two two brains brains... Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome back. Carl and Richard here for .NET Rocks, show number 211. What's up, guy? I'm just, I'm actually in a really great mood. I'm about to leave for Istanbul, going to do the Middle East uh, Developers Conference uh, this week. So that's pretty exciting. Istanbul, and, uh, not Constantinople? Uh, yes. Because it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. It's true. Yeah. Why they changed it, I can't say. Yeah. So uh, we, we've uh, just been talking tonight about uh, some just great stuff that we're going to be doing this coming year. This year. This yeah, year. Well, it's I'm, this year already. I, it is this year. It's 2007 now. And I'm just talking about the first half of this year. Yeah. That we're starting to maneuver and may, have the conversations with the folks about tech ed in Orlando. Yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. Dev uh, teach. Uh, Dev Teach, of course, in Montreal, which is uh, uh, JR's show, and we love that one. It's of course, always fun to go there. Yeah, of course, Dev Connections is coming up here very soon in yes. March. We'll be down there. Man. It's uh, nonstop. Uh, it's all, all fun. We're going to have to clone ourselves, Richard. Or something. I'm really, I really have a ball when we go and do these conferences and talk to real people. You know, that's, that's what it's all about for me. I love talking to people, hear what they're doing. Well, anyway, I got an email here from Russ Wilson, speaking of talking to the people. Hey, man, just wanted to drop you a line to let you know how much I enjoyed your DNR TV on the client server stuff. And he's talking, of course, about sockets. It was excellent. I learned so much from that. You really did a great job. 
I'm writing to let you know that as an educational project for myself, I converted all the code in that uh, episode to C sharp. I know you must be thinking blasphemer. Why do people? Th- <laughs> why do people think I? You know, just because I love VB doesn't mean I hate C sharp people. Yes, I love C sharp. But let me explain. I was listening to a DNR episode right after I watched that client server DNR TV episode and heard one of the guests. Uh, sorry, I can't remember this time, suggests that every developer should learn a new language once a year. Uh, editor's note here, that was Ted Neward at uh, DevReach in Bulgaria last year, wasn't it? That's right. Although the apparently the real attribution of that goes to a guy by the name of Dave Thomas, ah. who's one of the pragmatic programmer guys and obviously hangs around with Ted Neward quite a bit. Well, Ted said it uh, on our show anyway. That's true. He says, well, I learned Java in college, then got my first job 2.5 years ago as a .NET 1.1 programmer in C Sharp 1.0. He didn't say 1.0. I just (laughs) added that. Enjoying the decimal places? We were on a decimal roll. Okay. I consider myself to be very knowledgeable in both languages, but I've always wondered about VB and VB languages. I've only seen VB6 code, and I messed around with VBNet when I was helping a pal uh, with some logic for a small app he was writing, but I never actually worked with it intimately. Don't worry, you didn't miss much with VB6 compared to (laughs) VBNet. You'd be cursing. We thought it was great at the time, but that's another story. Well, after I listened to that DNR podcast, I decided I was going to learn VB.net. I then thought, well, I could take one of my small C-sharp apps and convert it over to VB.net, but I figured that it might be more difficult for me to do that because I'm so unfamiliar with the VB syntax. And then I thought, oh, wait, why don't I convert a VB.net app over to C-sharp so that I can become more familiar with the VB.net syntax by only having to read it? Well, where can I find some well-written VB.net code? Why, Carl Franklin, of course. I tried this method of conversion, and it worked like a charm. I'm sure I would have been banging my head over and over just to figure out how to convert a method signature from C-sharp to VB.net, but doing it the other way around was a great way to ease into the transition. So you might be thinking, great, so why are you telling me this? Well, Mr. Franklin, I thought you might want to share my experience with some of your users so that they might also venture into learning a new language the way I have begun to. Also, I'd like to offer you the C-sharp source code so that you might provide it to the community. It's just a thought, but I wanted to offer it anyway. Regardless, keep up the good work, and thanks for doing all the work that you do. You and Richard are my heroes. Best wishes, uh, Russ Wilson from Arthur, Illinois. Russ, thank you very much. That was very generous of you to offer, and yes, we would like to. Uh, put it up there. If you send it to me in a zip file, I'll make it available to people. And that's a great way, Richard, for people to learn a language is just to uh, take some code that they don't understand and convert it back to your uh, native language. Yeah, that was very clever of them to go the other way than what you would have thought people would do to right. convert uh, to the new language. Yeah, it's a good and idea. I'm surprised how much traction that statement about learning more languages has gotten really has i know it really seemed to hit a chord with people it's exciting stuff i'm glad to see it having some results me too so you got an email richard yes you had the love email now i've got the more difficult one here this is from andy anderson Uh hi i would like to see a dotnet rocks and dnr tv on the mysterious world of reporting ah i mean why is it hard or not hard It's something that everybody wants to know more about but is afraid to ask about. And, you know, he's right. I spent a lot of time writing a lot of reporting, and boy, oh, boy, it is hard. It's harder than it should be. Yeah, it's a different thing. It's different from regular run-of-the-mill programming. 
And then he runs through the basic issues. Let's say I want to start working with reports. What are my options? What's included in ASP.NET? Is it good or bad? Do I need active reports or crystal reports? What's good? What's bad? Everything's bad, man. Well, not everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's always challenging. And architecturally, how do I structure my application to support reports properly? How do I organize them, administrate them, and handle them? Some best practices around that would be really helpful. I want to avoid Hmm. pitfalls in spaghetti code. So maybe cover the basics of reporting and how you create them and what the terminology is all about, like the footers and the headers and data binding and so forth. And maybe a DNR TV to show the creation of a report like an invoice. Maybe that's a typical case that we report a lot of different skills. Please keep up the good job. And uh, thanks very much, Andy. Well, Andy, as a matter of fact, we did do a show with Adam Kogan on uh, SQL reporting services. Yeah, that was quite a while ago. On DNR TV. So you actually will get to see that in action. Go back into the archives at dnrtv.com and you'll see, I think we have at least a couple hours worth of uh, Adam showing you how to use uh, reporting services. But, you know, I would really like to uh, do a best practices show on reporting with a few different tools. Because, I mean, I remember from my crystal days that I had pretty fundamental reflexes like thou shalt not allow the reporting tool to write a query. Yeah. Because it sucks at it. Yeah. Write a stored procedure, allow the reporting tool, re- format the report, and nothing else. Right. But uh, yeah. I, I, it's on my list. I'm going to find a show. We're going to get some uh, more discussion on reporting. Hey, Richard, you should do a DNR TV on reporting. You should do it. I'm, uh, yeah, you know, I'm just a little rusty. I guess I could dust off the old stuff and put it together, but it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting thought. Uh, you mean, mean getting me to do the work? What's up with that? Well, actually, you know, more to the point, maybe just any DNR TV with you would be good. I mean, you've done some stellar talks at TechEd that we could turn into DNR TV shows. That, that's a, yeah, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. Next time we run out of content. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been saving up the shows with me for when we really need them. Right. All right, Richard, let's uh, bring on our guest. The esteemed Raymond Chen is a programmer in the Windows division at Microsoft. He's the author of the website, The Old New Thing, where he writes about Windows history and Win32 programming when he's not writing about knitting, bicycling, studying Swedish, reading middle school essays, and other unlikely hobbies. He also writes the Windows Confidential column for TechNet Magazine, and his essays on Windows have been collected into a new book, coincidentally, also titled The New Old Thing. Welcome, Raymond. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Hey, guys. Hey. We're huge fans. Oh, well, well, thank you. It's it's, it's always good to add some more people to the growing legion, uh, the growing army. Yeah. I have a camp, I understand. That's, yeah, there is a camp, yes. This is this was news to me. I'm just sort of minding my own business, and if everybody starts forwarding this article, I'm like, "What? Apparently, I have a camp. This is great. I wonder. I can't fit them all in a tent, but it'll be fun." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you you the the Win32 API kind of guys, such as you are, and I mean, you've worked at Microsoft all through the development at Windows, and you know all about that stuff. You were the rock stars of that era, you know. Um, Dan Appleman was certainly the rock star of the Visual Basic world, was Win32 API guide for VB programmers. And, you know, the guys who could, you know, just whip off, you know, 
peak message and send message and, and all that kind of stuff. Like they were, you know, oh, yeah, you just got a peak message and blah, 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 blah. You know, you guys were the, the, the heroes of the day. Well, I actually came, I sort of came onto the scene late. I, I didn't start until Windows 95, the early days of Windows 95. So the, the early groundwork of Win32 happened, you know, before I showed up. Well, not much before you showed up. I mean, it was... Hey. I, 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 but, well, it, before enough that I get to use it in his excuse when I don't want to answer a question. <laughs> <laughs> before your time. Yes. Oh, uh, that, that preceded me, and uh, I can't find anybody who was around then. Sorry. All those people have died or were killed. <laughs> Now they're sunning themselves in Maui or something. <laughs> well, let's talk about your book, which came out of uh, which came out of your blog, I suppose, because they have the the same name. They have the same title. Yeah, this, I think uh, you flip you flip the words "old" and "new" in the book title, but people can figure it out. Is it the old new thing or the it's new? It's the old, old new thing because the Win Thirty Two was the new thing, and now it's the old new thing. Ah, uh, yeah, yes. Because the new new thing is .NET. Well, and. There was another book called The New New Thing. I think Mark Andreessen wrote it. Was that is that um, the Netscape guy wrote one of those uh, books? I, I, I'll have to take your word for it. Well, uh, we should call .NET the new, new, new thing. The new just to be, just to be <laughs> the safe. The .new thing. <laughs> I like that. But uh, this book is full of history. Uh, you know, the history behind... The, the sort of the oddities of Windows, every time, you, you know, you scratch your head and say, why does it do that? You sort of answer all those, or try to answer all those questions. Right. Because a, a lot of, a lot of um, Win32 programming, a lot of the, the, the issues surrounding it, just, uh, it, uh, they can be cleared up once you sort of get into the right mindset. If you start thinking the way the people who designed Win32, or in fact, 16-bit Windows, were thinking, then a lot of pieces start to fall into place. Yeah. You uh so question for you, what do vending machines teach us about effective user interfaces? <laughs> but vending vending machines are, are are these sorts of things that have user interfaces and nobody actually thinks of them as having you having user interfaces until you buy the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which has happened to me. You know, oh, you yeah. walk up to the machine, you're like, oh, I want those pretzels over an A10. You put your money in, and you push A10, and then you get the potato chips. Yeah. Because the potato chips are in A1. Mm. You have various things. So so I, I, I sort of used vending machines as, an, as just sort of a poster child for, like, okay, how would, how would you design the interface for a vending machine? What are the problems you anticipate with the very, you know, because the, obviously there are many ways of setting it up. If you do it this way, you know, what sort of problems you anticipate? And it's, 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 it's a lot of balancing. And, and this, that's just a, uh, a common thread in user interface design is that, you, you know, you, you can't do everything. You have to find the right balance. You have to, under, you have to figure out who your audience is and, 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 you know, juggle all these different conflicting goals. I put a little first-person shooter interface on that so you can, like, wind through these, you know, corridors and you see the potato chips, you go, boom, 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 and they just sort of fall out onto the, you know. The... Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, dude, you can, like, so totally vermal that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, vermal is like, it, it took, remember, remember when vermal took over the world back in 99? And it's like, it's been a whole new world ever since. Virtual reality modeling language, kids. Yeah, <laughs> I actually remember there was a there was a memo that was sent round um, talking about uh, uh, 
the dropping of support for, for VRML. And the memo basically explained that the reason why Internet Explorer, I think it was Internet Explorer, was dropping support, built-in support for VRML, was that one by one, all of the VRML companies went out of business. Yeah. And, were, and their remains were bought up by this one super mega VRML company, which then went out of business. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason why it's not supported anymore is that there's nobody left. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, that's one way to kill a feature. Probably a bad sign. It, yeah, but but I'm I'm still holding out hope, right? Because I mean, you know, I'm 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 sure that all the prognosticators predicted that the way we'd be buying books in the year 2000 would we we'd log on to Amazon, right, and then we'd enter this virtual world and walk down the stacks and see book spines. It would it it just totally it, it would be so intuitive. I'm still waiting for that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's another question for you. This is a specific gripe I have about Windows. What's the deal with no, you know def- number. what what's the deal with default directories with dialog boxes and how come after I open a file and I go to a place and then I go to open a file again how come I just don't get how come I'm still not in that same place and I have to navigate yet another tree one more time you know to this one place that I have to go why is that okay well. Once upon a time, the common the, the the file open dialog was a very simple thing, and it just and the cur- the current directory that it used was the current directory of the program that called it. Mm-hmm. This worked really great until programs decided not to care about their current directory, and so you would run the program, and the default save location would be like, you know, c colon whack my app, and you would, people would be saving their documents in the directory that the program was installed into, or something. So yeah. the files were just all over the place. So given the fact that the common dialogues originally left it up to the program to decide where everything was saved, and that didn't work, now you have to figure out how are you going to change it so that way the save locations are more sane while not breaking all the programs that thought they knew what they were doing. And so if you go into the MSDN documentation on get open file name, it has this flow chart, basically, that describes how the current directory is chosen where there are a bunch of heuristics that try to determine whether this is, a, this is a program that cares or doesn't care. If the program cares, then we need to respect that. If the program doesn't care, then we'll try to put you back where you were or you know, default you to the documents directory. It's all a very complicated thing. And it, it basically has to do with the fact that this same function still needs to work the way it used to for people who used it back in the days when it worked a different way. Didn't anybody ever think to put a drop-down list box of the recent locations that you've been to at the top of the dialog box? Um, I'm sure somebody thought of it. Uh, I, I didn't work with the design of the common dialogue, so I don't know. But I mean, doesn't that seem to be the kind of thing that could easily solve that problem and still maintain, you know, backward compatibility? I I think that I, I, I I don't know for sure, but I always, I I thought the history was sort of working towards that or something. Yeah. I'm, I. I've seen other software implement that. Um, as you know, the recent recent locations. Yeah, that's sort of the that's right, and just being able to drop that down to go to that directory is a real time saver. Right. the The thing is, then you you start running into the problem of like, well, now we have like three different drop downs on the dialog box, and like you know, people start wondering what the difference is between you know the recent or recent locations and the breadcrumb bar and and then the navigation bar, and it's like, why are there five ways of choosing a directory? Yeah. <laughs> and there's more than five. 
Right. Well, why are there five of them staring me in the face and then another three that only like, the 12-year-old next door knows about? Well, I don't know. I mean, that never stopped Microsoft before from adding new th- weird things to more user Yeah, and look where it got us. You have, you yeah. know, I mean, the Office guys finally figured out that adding more and more widgets just creates this horrific information overload mess thing. And then they started taking stuff away with the ribbon. You know, I I find it kind of frustrating to, you know, where's the print button? You know, where's the where's the save as? I well, I, you know, I have, you got have taken f- away, it just got reorganized. But then you have yeah, True. and the, but there is the adjustment to the new organization. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like it out of the way once I found out where everything was. But, you know, that that little fun time of discovery was not all that fun. Well, like the old way was much better. Well, at least you knew where like it was. Men- at least if you did four levels deep. At least if you did Alt F A, you know, you could or Control A, you knew that that was save as. But but you know what's interesting, of course, is we're all geeks here, and we're struggling with these things, dealing with it as a regular mortal. You know, I I often look at the ribbon and think this is going to be great for people who aren't me. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that was one of the things that um, I think I, I wrote about it back when we were when we were doing the the user interface designs for Windows XP and then the interface designs for Windows Vista. Is that when we were showing the Windows XP designs to people, they always said, "Oh, this is going to be this is you know." I was like, pe- the reaction to people was, "I wouldn't use this myself, but it would be really great for X." Right. Where X was yeah. my mom or my brother or my employees or you know somebody else, but then when and and it's like well at at least they like it in a sort of strange way and in Windows Vista we at least turned the corner where people started saying I actually like this for me. Yeah. So it's 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 not it's not just that I think this is good for other people that people actually like it themselves. And is it interesting? I mean, you're in the operating system space, how much of the look and feel of all of these programs ultimately come down to the operating system? You guys make some pretty core decisions about that sort of stuff. Well, it's the, you know, all the non-client stuff, the, the, the caption bar and the frame and, uh, you know, the minimi- the minimize animations that, you know, the, 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 the stuff that programs typically don't worry themselves with. Um, you know, that's sort of the operating system's job is to do the, 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 the gross level window management stuff. Um, there are, of course, programs that, that say, you know, forget this, I'm going to do it, take care of it all myself, in which case they get your, you know, they, you get your totally customized interface that nobody else understands. Right. So, Raymond, do a little chess beating here and tell us about one of the coolest things that you got to implement in Windows. The coolest thing I got to implement in Windows was I deleted scraps. Scraps. <laughs> deleted it so well that nobody knows what it is anymore. Exactly. Well, what the hell is that, Ray? Your scraps were basically a virus delivery mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, we can't leave that alone. I'm, I'm thinking of a couple more I'd like to add to that list, like QuickTime, perhaps. <laughs> Real player. Scraps was introduced back in Windows 95, where you could take, for example, you could have some document up on the screen. You're going to highlight some text and drag it out and just drop it on your desktop, and a little document fragment showed up. And later on, you can take that document fragment and, dra- and drag it out off of your desktop and back into another document, and it was as if you had, you know, it's sort of like the two-part drag-drop. Huh. So you can, you can drag a, a, a document fragment onto your desktop, and then 
you know, three days later, take the document fragment and then drag it and drop it into something else. So it's like using your desktop as a clipboard, kind of. As a, as a very long-term clipboard. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is that if you double-clicked the scrap file, it launched the document that you clipped the scrap out of so you could view what was in the scrap. Hmm. And virus vendors thought this was, you know, people, not virus vendors. <laughs> I suspect there are virus vendors out there, but they call themselves um, software marketing assistants or yeah. something. Um, but, you know, people who do virus stuff are like, hey, you know, I can just, you know, create these little scrap thingies. And anyway, so we did, I remember we were trying to decide, okay, what do we, we, we you know, we've been doing a whole bunch of work to, to make scraps, to protect the system from scraps better and better. Um, and then the question arose is like, well, who's actually using scraps? Hmm. And from your quizzical expression at the beginning, I can tell that you two aren't on that list. Um, and so we called our product support people saying, okay, product, okay, guys, um, we're looking at scraps and we're interested in how often people call up with problems with scraps and because that's sort of a, you can use that as a as a one way of measuring how heavily a feature is used. Because if a feature is heavily used, then you're going it. to get a lot of calls about it. I mean, no matter how beautifully you design the feature, there's going to be there are going to be people who will have trouble with it for one reason or another. Right. And yeah, so PSS has got to be a good way to judge the usage level of almost any feature. Right. I mean, obviously, you have to take into account the fact that well, you know, the better features tend to do things to to reduce the need for people to call in so it's not a perfect metric but but it, it's it's you know it's it's a rule of thumb type of thing and when we asked them i as i'm trying to remember the number but i think it was they said oh yes in the last year we got a total of four calls <laughs> hmm. so it wasn't actually zero it wasn't zero but you know four calls out of how many million windows users is Basically zero to within statistical error. And it doesn't seem like one of those features that if you took it away, people would go, oh, no, now what oh, will no, I do? Oh, no, not my scraps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, that's, so that's, that's what we did in one of the early betas. I took it out. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a unilateral decision on my part, right? Yeah. I mean, was, we, we did all this research, and we eventually decided, okay, okay, we're going to take a chance on it. We took it out. But you did the surgery. I got, yes, I got, I got to hit delete a lot of times. It was, it was very satisfying. <laughs> we took it out. Not a peep. Nobody even noticed. Yes. Which is like, and, you know, and, and so you just sit in your office saying, like, yes, where's the next thing I can delete? <laughs> that can't be the only thing, though, that, uh, that you've, you've done historically. Well, I, well, yeah, I, I, I do a bunch of stuff, but it's all blurred. You know, it, 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 <laughs> when you get as old as, as I am, you know, you have trouble remembering stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I think, oh, go talk to, go talk to Chris. He might know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, oh, what did I, did I have breakfast today? I can't remember. You came into Microsoft in what, 1992. So that was during the great 16 to 32 bit migration, the push for Windows 95. That's right. I, I, I came in close to the ground floor of Windows 95, or what eventually became Windows 95. So what do you think about that? Oh, please. Dum dum. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that, that's great. You'll be here all week. <laughs> Try the veal. <laughs> Try the veal. Yeah. Don't forget to tip your waiter. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> Who invented that word thunk? 
moving from th- 16-bit to 32-bit and back? I, I, I don't know where it came from. I first heard it back in the OS2 days. Yeah. When uh, the OS2 folks were solving very similar problems and and their translation layer was was also called a thunk layer. Now, what was your involvement with OS2? Um, the, the therapy is really helping on that. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't you didn't come from the Microsoft side. You were always on the uh, I mean the IBM side. You were always in the Microsoft. I was on the Microsoft OS2 half camp. of OS2. So you must uh, have got a lot of hate mail from people when you when they decided to uh, can it. Yeah, heck, I sent myself hate mail. <laughs> I mean, I spent a lot of time on that thing. How dare I do that? Yeah. Poor old OS2. It never really did anything wrong. I, I remember one of my colleagues who also worked on OS2, OS2 1.3 described it as the world's best 16-bit protected mode operating system. Hmm. Right. And I understand ATMs still use it. I usually encounter it as the front end to uh, S360s. You know, they, they, this was the advanced client environment to talk to a mainframe. Wow. I remember those. It never goes away. <laughs> Just like 360s never go away. TN3270? Yeah, and 3270. Well, actually, 3270 seems to be going away, but mostly because it only ever caused people pain. If things that only cause people pain went away, that or wait, hang on, I lost the I lost the structure of that sentence. Never mind. <laughs> I was going somewhere then. and then I got lost. <laughs> I need coffee. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. Uh, okay, well, um, so in, in your book, the... Uh, let me get this right. Wait a minute. It's... Uh, the new, new, no, wait a minute. It's the, it's the old, old, new thing. Oh, the old, new thing. Okay, yes. It, so in the old, new thing. Perhaps you, I should have just called it, you know, some funny made up name. <laughs> no, no, no. Phantasmagoria, except that's I, not a made up name. So you take an under the hood look at COM and the Visual C <laughs> compiler. That actually. Is this, what like, year was this that, book that, published that's in? Not, that's not, that, that really isn't that deep under the hood. It's just sort of like, well, you're staring at some. You know, disassembly, and you got a memory dump, and you got to figure out what's going on, or yeah. you, you know, your your program crashed in some funny way, and you're just you're you're just cruising through dumping memory, and you have to figure out how to piece things back together. I see. So you you, it's not sort of like now let's talk about com. It's more like you know th- this is the reason why you're experiencing X is because of the way com works. Yeah, it's 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 it, it, it was more along the lines of. If you understand a little more of how it works, then working with it becomes easier. So um, how, how do you think the, uh, the interop layer turned out in .NET, you know, coming from, uh, you know, the, the comm world making that bridge and the decisions that they made? Uh, do you think that it was ultimately the best collection of decisions they could have made? I have 
No idea what you're talking about. I work in Win32. Oh, okay. I have no expertise in this .NET stuff. I've never even done com interop. You say com interop. I'm like, wow, that sounds really great. I should read about that someday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I figured, the subtitle you know... of, the, of the website, after all, is not a .NET blog. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I, was, I knew that. I was just testing you. So. <laughs> <laughs> does, does this count as a pass or a fail? <laughs> All right, well, let's talk Win32 then. <laughs> I specifically have an issue right now that I'm writing a low-level audio, um, basically, component. And even though it's in .NET, it's all using the Windows API, right? Okay. Is there any reason why opening, you know, using Wave in Open in, a Vista, in Vista is going to cause a problem? Like, the same application that works absolutely fine in Windows XP, when run in Vista, once we go and open that uh, low-level audio device, boom. You know, that's multimedia. I know multimedia audio. I've never worked with multimedia audio. You might want to ask Larry Austin. Wow, you I are like, you, you are focused, audio. man. Absolutely. <laughs> this is test number two, and he passed both of them. He is, see, is hyper-focused. One, one of the things that is very important to understand about yourself is where your limits are. Yeah, absolutely. You have to know what you don't know. Yeah, and you have to stick to your guns and say, ah, nope, that is not my department. <laughs> that, not only is it not my department, it's something I've never even typed. <laughs> wow. Like, I couldn't spell it unless you gave me a lot of help. Okay. So what kinds of things... Well, let me ask you this. How do you get more than 32,000 characters into a rich text box? That's, a, that's an amazing question. By coincidence, I, I answered it very recently. Yeah, wow. There's just... It, it, for, for some bizarro, presumably compatibility reason, rich edit controls have a default maximum size of 32,767 characters, and you have to set, send some special message to, to raise the ceiling. It's it's a very simple thing to do, but if you forget it, you end up with truncated text. Which brings up the question: Why would you want to put more than thirty-two thousand seven hundred and sixty-eight characters in a in a rich text edit control? Uh, if your lawyers gave you this uh, end user license agreement that goes on for five hundred pages, ah, very yeah. good. Which is typically, I mean, because the rich text control is often used to display those sorts of things inside, you know, a setup wizard and. You know, so the poor user has to hit page down 50 times to read it all, and then it ends in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out the lawyers get really upset when you don't show the user the entire agreement. And, and nobody discovers that for a year. Right, and nobody discovers that because nobody actually reads through the whole thing except dorks like me. So, Raymond, who, who is it in your family that calls every program Outlook? I'm not telling. <laughs> because I prefer to remain on good terms with them. Yeah. So tell us that story. Well, it's this is this is this was my New Year's story of um just trying to convey to my great fantastic army of readers that that normal people and I do not consider the people who read my stuff to be normal. Um <laughs> normal people don't view computers the same way we do. And That's the example sure. I gave was one of my relatives who calls everything on the computer Outlook, regardless <laughs> of what the program is actually doing. <laughs> so the questions would be like, so how do I play that card game on Outlook again? 
<laughs> or why when when I try when they when when I try to visit this website, Outlook keeps showing me these advertisements. <laughs> How do I get Outlook to adjust the volume? Um, and the reason behind this is very simple: is that um, this person worked at a um, industrial design type of company doing CAD work. And previously, they worked on a dedicated CAD machine. Yeah, that's all the machine did. That's all the machine did was was, was computer-aided design, right? You know, uh, laying out uh, circuits or, uh, you know, designing objects. You know, all that great CAD stuff that I don't understand. Um, and the company then upgraded all the machines, got rid of the dedicated CAD machines, and instead got PCs with CAD software. And the way it was introduced to the employees was, okay, we got rid of all the CAD machines. We now have PCs with the CAD software and Outlook. Yeah. Which meant that, you know, they installed the CAD software, and they also installed Outlook so everybody could read their email. Yeah, yeah. And so this particular person said, (laughs) well, let's see. What's on this computer? There's the CAD software. I know what that is because that's the stuff I've been doing all my life. And then there's this other stuff. That must be Outlook. What's really amazing is that because most people and these people that we're talking about fall into the category of most people, these same people, they have no frame of reference for a lot of this stuff because they've never experienced... They don't don't even understand what it is computers are are Uh, capable of, where the the boundaries that to us are completely obvious, the boundaries between the hard drive and memory and and, and one program, the the difference between the program and the document. Yeah. These are distinctions that to us as geeks are completely natural and obvious, but to a normal person using a computer, they are it's all a blur. It's all a cloud. Yeah, there's no organic metaphor for them to paste this concept to, so they can't so you're you get weird things like that. Yeah, I I have the same issue with my mother whose classic uh tech support cry is I can't find my pictures in Kodak Easy Share. You know, and she wants me to come to her house and and find it. And I look at this UI and it's horrible. And there's no, you know, it's one of these programs that's dumbed down so that there's no options. So there's no tweaking. So there's no way to find, oh, no, you can't look in this directory, look in that directory. And there is one place where you put a directory. And when you go into that, you, you put in something else, it complains. So there's just, you know, my, my advice to her is, Get rid of that damn program. <laughs> don't, use, don't use that program. Because <laughs> I, I don't but, understand but, I mean, but that, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's, a, I'm, that's not, I don't think that's the same class of problem that, that, that I was sort of trying to bring up with, with the Outlook story, which is that, I mean, that, that was like frustration with a particular program. So it, at, at least she knew what program she was running. Yes, yes. Right? I mean, there's the other category, which is just like, you know, the computer is broken. Or right. I I surf the web with the computer. Well, are you yeah. using Firefox? You're an explorer. I'm using the computer. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's 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 it. I mean, I, and and I'm sure I make the same type of mistake. You know, like if my car starts making funny noises, they're going to say, "Well, is the funny noise coming from you know the the fuel injector or the or the brakes?" I'm like, I the car is making a funny noise. So, what's in your my documents slash my big pet peeves folder? 
<laughs> I, I try to. I, I I don't think I actually have one of those. I I I I, I, I try not to let things get to me. I've I've decided that that's just not worth the effort. There there are things that frustrate me, and they frustrate me for a little while, and then I decide that I it's just not worth getting upset about. <laughs> So, what, what was this about the uh, subdirectories of my documents thing that cr- got in, stuck in your craw? That was just to stop the madness. It's just that you know everybody thinks that their program is so awesome that it should, on its own, create a directory in my documents and put all of its stuff there. Mm. And in my opinion, that's just stupid. Put it in my documents. That's why it's called my documents. And and, and <laughs> more relevantly, let the User if the user sort of the wants way they to want organize to. them in some really clever way, that's wonderful. But right. you know, if you just put all of your if if it's if it's actually a document and it goes into my documents, when the user goes to open it, they go to my documents. It's there. Your program, if you call get open file name, is going to have a filter so it only shows documents that your program can open. It works great. Yeah. You know, if if your if if your program you know does CAD diagrams and your file extension is .dot CAD or something, the person says you know open the CAD diagram. Okay, I'll share all the CAD diagrams in my docs. You won't see the Word docs. You won't see the Excel docs. That's fine. It's all in my <laughs> docs. Here are the CAD documents. That's the picture of the house I want to own. Some that I want to have built. It's going to have like a soda fountain tap in every room. Go. <laughs> But that's a very program-centric way of looking at things. I thought yeah. the whole idea behind my documents was that it would be a document-centric way of looking at things. Right. Well, and you open up my documents, and oh, look, there's my dream house. Mm-hmm. As opposed to you know having to go into my you know uh, computer-aided design drawings folder. Sort by type. Sort that's by what me. it's for. Just no. It's just look for the picture. Yeah. Well, there you go. If you're looking in icon mode. Or thumbnail mode. Um, what can you pick from your vast array of experiences? One of the quirks of Windows that people just don't get—they don't understand—and debunk it for us, or demythologize it. Oh, oh, just like the the myths. Yeah. Um. Well, there, there's. There was a long series that I did trying to debunk the three gig switch. Oh <laughs> man, that name, what a great topic! Because everybody's throwing four gigs in their machine and wondering where the gig went, <laughs> <laughs> or where the two. It's like, oh, it says Windows only uses two gig by default. Well, how do I get it to use the other two? Well, I can put this three, but what happens to that other one? <laughs> yeah, this is something that we've actually talked about a couple of times on the show, and I don't think we ever really came up with a definitive answer, did we, Richard? No, not really. I mean, it's it's it just establishes the kernel, how much address space is available to user mode programs, okay. um, which is not the same as how much memory the computer can use or how much memory can be allocated across the entire system. Um, and it's like just just leave it at two, and everything will be great. I'm so four I'm, is I'm out not of the sure question. how much detail you're looking for at this point. No, no. So so what is what is the issue? Let's just back up a little bit for those who don't know. What is the issue, and what's the answer? Well, the issue is that there is no issue, but the, and, and the answer is don't mess with it. But what people <laughs> find is there's this three-gig switch, and they're like, oh, three-gig, that's, that's better than two. It's better I, than two. It's better than two. It's one more. Now, where is so, this switch? Is this a, a it's, registry well, hack or something? Well, back in the old days, it was in boot.ini, 
And in the new days, it's in BCD edit somewhere, I assume. Mm. Um, the new boot configuration thingy. Um, but the, the, the point is that the, the 32-bit systems have an address space of 4 gigabytes. Mm-hmm. By convention, it is divided that those 4 gigabytes of address space are divided between kernel mode, which is where you know really core critical device driver operating system stuff hangs out, and user mode, which is stuff programs can 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 manipulate. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, it is split two and two, so that way programs can work with up to two billion memory addresses, and kernel mode gets two billion, and everybody is happy. Um, under certain very specific circumstances, if you have a program that is specifically designed to deal with uh, you know, extra large data sets like Exchange Server or SQL Server or, or maybe a CAD program. You can adjust the split so that way user mode gets three gigabytes of address space, not memory, but address space, mm-hmm. and then kernel mode gets only one gigabyte. But as I described in on the website, this this squeezes kernel into this squeezes kernel mode into only one gigabyte, which I described as like trying to change your clothes while standing inside the closet. Ah, um, there's not a lot of room to work with. You can you can do it, but it's not going to be pretty. You know, you're going to come out of the closet not necessarily looking your best, and it'll take you longer than you maybe you would you had expected. So why um, the one gig boundary? Why not something smaller? In other Meaning, words, why, why, why give kernel even that much? No, why couldn't you bump up? Uh, why couldn't you split it to say one point five gig plus, you know, in two point five? Well, yeah. There's then there's another there's another option user VA which lets you tweak that even finer, mm-hmm. where you can in fact do the you know okay I'll give user mode two point two five. Okay. So there is there is another ultra mega fine tuning switch that even fewer people should be messing with. Mm. And it really gets back to the real issue, which is that there are so few good cases to do this. Because well, because if you set this, if if you decide, okay, let's go up to, you know, let's 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 adjust the the split. Almost no programs will even take advantage of it. So you are right. you are cramping kernel mode for no benefit. It's mm. uh, you know you're you're just you're you're saying okay programs here's another here's another gigabyte of address space. That you can, you know, do stuff with, and they, the programs don't even try. Yeah, you shouldn't even be thinking about this unless you see your, you know, in the in the the process explorer, you see your memory utilization at ninety nine percent. No, it's not even memory utilization. This is all address space, and I don't know if there's a an address space gizmo thingy in process explorer um, because this has nothing to do with memory. This is this is address space allocation. Okay. So you can you can call you know virtual alloc mem True. reserve of you know a quarter gig of memory, and that comes out of address space. There's no actual memory involved. This is just the potential to talk about memory. Right. The only place I've ever seen this used was on SQL Server on large scale machines that were stuck in 32 bit for whatever reason. Hmm. Right. And, and and the modern solution to that is to move to 64 bit machines where this problem, you know, now now you have the like the 16 terabyte limit which is probably enough to leave, you know, I made up that number, but it's yeah, yeah. it's a large enough number that there'll be enough time to deal with it once we once that becomes a problem. Most people run out of money at 64 gigabytes now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, so the ad, yeah, it's like if you're if you're if if address space is still a problem, 
64-bit is where, like, I, as I understand it, like, the latest version of Exchange Server is 64-bit only. Right. It's like they, they, they finally gave up trying to deal with the, just like, just, just go 64. And it's, it's not that the 64-bit machine, I mean, you, the 64-bit machine has more address space, even though it doesn't necessarily have more memory, because it's not about memory. It's, it's about the ability to talk about memory. Right. And, and what you have to do to get to it. I, I, I assume I have now completely confused everybody. Well, no, I think your first answer was great. Just leave it alone and don't worry about it. <laughs> if you need more memory, get XP64 or Vista64. Well, and, it, and I mean, the reality is you can run a 64-bit operating system, but unless you have, uh, and unless you have programs to take advantage of it, adding more memory is not going to help you there either. I, I'm sitting in front of a 64-bit uh, XP professional machine right now. It's got four gigs of RAM in it, but it only reports 2.75 when you ask it because it, it's used for other things. It doesn't mean programs don't run well. And in the end, I can't take advantage of that without running 64-bit apps anyway. And there's just not that many of those. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things we could probably spend some time on is really clarifying the differences between address space and memory. And it's certainly something, Raymond, you know, backwards and forwards. And most people don't think about the fact that they're different things. That was actually one of the, that was one of the, uh, for my PDC talk back in 2006, that was one of the topics I was I had originally planned on, but I had to cut it for time, which was you know, which was discussing address space, uh, committed memory, and how they all fit together. Um, and it got cu- well, it got cut for two reasons: one, time, and two, it's stuff that when I was doing the the sort of you know the run throughs, the impression from a lot of people was, well, this is stuff people should at the PDC already know. You shouldn't be wasting their time on this. So I just assumed that it was something that you know I I shouldn't be I I shouldn't be uh, wasting my readers' time on this is stuff that they already know. Let's move on to other stuff. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, that's, I mean that that's actually a a, um, a tricky problem for me is is exactly what level of readership should I be targeting? Because I'm I'm trying to target it at sort of more the more the advanced. You know, where the, the the people for whom the distinction between physical memory and address space is 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 not a problem. That you know, yeah. But but on the other hand, you know, with a, a sufficiently large readership, there's a good spread of um, of the audience. I, I, I it's always been a problem for me, Raymond, and I've found that there's many more of the intermediate levels who don't quite have a grasp of some of those fundamental things, but they just, you know, develop software. There's far more of them than there are CS types who understand the goo in the ins and outs. That's been, you know, in, just in terms of numbers of audience out there. Right. But but on the other hand, I, I sort of want to talk about the really scary stuff. Right. <laughs> That's um, the fun stuff. And but the problem with that is that when I sometimes I'll, I'll I'll try to push you know a little higher, and then all the follow up questions come up about things that to me were sort of like that was a prerequisite before even reading this article. Right. Um, and so I'm I always find myself torn between should I push higher or should I should I pull back? And and the thing about pulling the it it's it, it's sort of a, a a niche placement thing too because if I start pulling back then I start moving closer to probably where the bulk of other bloggers hang out. I agree. Yeah. So it's, it's, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I, so just do that thing you do. Don't ever change. 
<laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, there the, there are plenty of people covering the the lower level intermediate sure, the stuff. The upper middle class type of thing. Yeah, I I would say you know do what you do what what you like to do, and you know your audience will find you. All right. I mean, and, unless you're going for sheer numbers, which it doesn't sound like you're. You know, that's not what you're all about. That's not really what I'm after. Yeah. So. So I mean, then, then when the question comes in, I mean, say, I, Screw you. I, I, I can't just say, oh, <laughs> you're not smart enough to read this. <laughs> it's funny. I'm pretty sure I've read blogs where it said exactly that. Yeah. You must be this smart to read this blog entry. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I should put that up. Like, but when the, before the page comes up, you get this little quiz. Yeah. <laughs> to weed out the, uh. Just right. to, yeah, it's like oh, you have to you have to score at least eighty percent on this quiz, or I'm just you just can't even see half of the stuff on here. Yep. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express crafting first class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. You know, I had a realization a little while ago, jumping back to a somewhat technical topic, that I was thinking about the old days where in Windows 2000, Windows NT, where you had this idea of the single processor core and the multiprocessor core, and they were different inside the operating system. Depending on how you installed it, it actually came up differently. And these days, it sounds, well, that we have processors that have multiple cores in them, it seems like we're always running multiprocessor core all of the time. Yeah, we sort of gave up on on having two different kernels, depending on whether you're single or multi-proc, because even the single-proc machines are hyper-threaded, so they're logically multi-proc anyway. So there was sort of the the reason for the distinction has since died with the advancement of technology. I'm I'm not unhappy that hyper-threading is going away, though. It seemed to cause more problems than it fixed. Well, whether whether it's going away or not, there there is enough of the machines out there with it that the, the kernel still certainly has to worry about it. Yeah, we always yeah we're never going to get rid of hyperthreading completely, but mm. now now with I mean every Intel and AMD are both manufacturing true multi core processors, uh, which Microsoft from a license point of view still treats as a single processor, but in but logically it recognizes those two processors in there and off it goes. Right. So so basically. It's uh, na- nowadays when you when you the, the computers coming out nowadays are all multi-proc in the logical sense. Yes. Um, yeah. So so yeah, the whole the whole unit you know uniproc multi-proc kernel thing. Thank goodness is finally you know faded away. And yeah. like, sure, if you actually have one of those five-year-old machines without without hyper-threading, without dual proc, yes, it may not run. As fantastic, you know, as super mega fantastic as it could, but then again, your machine's kind of old, and it probably you probably don't like it much anyway. Yeah, switching to the <laughs> Uniproc kernel wouldn't have helped you anyway. Yeah, it's like oh, switching to Uniproc kernel, win back that 0.5 percent. Good job. <laughs> I hope you feel better. <laughs> now let's see you try now 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 go upgrade your video card already, will ya? Right. Just yeah, go buy you- a new one. And literally, you're just not making a Uniproc version of the kernel anymore. It's it's irrelevant. Yeah, and the, the kernel just assumes it's multi-proc, and no, it's a multi-proc machine with one proc. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah, 
That's you know, it, it has all the lock instructions. It, it's 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 ready. It's it's multi proc ready. How's that? That's like marketing. <laughs> ready for the for the next leap forward in in the in our, our the great leap forward in the twenty first century world. Multi multi processing will become the new the the new black. I'm I. This is why I'm not in marketing. <laughs> So, Raymond, how many, and this is interesting stuff because we have been talking about this on the regional director alias recently, um, being backward compatible and making sure that you don't uh, abandon and alienate large numbers of users, um, you know, can, is this the explanation for 99% of what people don't like about Windows? No, but it's the explanation for 90, 99% of the questions people ask me. <laughs> or more accurately, it's 99% of the answers I will give to questions people ask me. Yeah. Actually, I don't know about that number, but, but well, I mean, yeah. compatibility is, is very important because, as, as I'm sure you all know, and as I've harped on many times, if your next operating system isn't compatible with the previous one, this seriously affects how many people will upgrade. For yeah. sure. And and while a lot of people say that, you know, well, nobody upgrades Windows, right? People just buy a computer and it comes with Windows already. And while that may be true, it's it's not that while that may be true sort of in the long term steady state, um Windows is rarely in that steady state. I mean, Christmas comes every year. Yeah. So, you know, every Christmas there's another huge chunk of people who are upgrading their machines because grandma bought them a copy of Windows. Grandma doesn't know what she was buying. Grandma just went to the store and said, I want Billy to have something cool. And instead of getting an Xbox, because he was already got one or something. Um, and so, you know, the up- upgrades are still important. Um, even even if your computer came with, you know, the latest, uh, uh, the new version of Windows, probably half of the programs that came pre-installed were not written with that version of Windows in mind. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you you can do it, but then you have to, you know, it, 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 it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of, of uh, lost productivity. The companies who suddenly find that that program they've been using to do payroll for the past 10 years doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And it turns out companies don't like it when they can't run payroll. Yeah, it's, they're funny that way. Yeah, I, I I never quite understood it. Somebody tried to explain it to me once, but then my eyes glazed over. <laughs> I see you talking. All I hear is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Fiduciary this. <laughs> oh, man. I just like the word fiduciary. That's a great word, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not Sounds sure dirty. what it means, but I like to say it. <laughs> You fiduciary. <laughs> Don't be such a fiduciary. Don't be. <laughs> Did you just call me a fiduciary? <laughs> Who you call the fiduciary? Who you call the fiduciary? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Now, I mean, you don't make a living inside of the .NET space at all, but... I hang out there, but I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's not my area of expertise. I'm, I'm just another schmuck like everybody else. <laughs> you manage your own code, you fiduciary. No, I, I write managed code. Yeah. I'm just not this, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not the expert in it. So I will allow other people who are experts to field these questions. 
I really think it's a good thing that you're out there, though, because it seems like, you know, the the Win32 people are nowhere to be found these days. You know? Yeah, it was that was there was actually an interesting story behind that when um when I started working on the book and I started shopping it around one of the publishers when I approached them and said hi I have this proposal you know be I you know you'd be kind enough to take a look at it and and the person asked you know so what's what's the general topic I said well it's it's, it's about it's about Windows history and Win32 programming and 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 the person basically scoffed and said oh nobody does Win32 programming anymore. Hmm. And I said, okay, well, I, I guess that means you're not interested in the book then. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, of course, the silly part is everybody still does Win32 programming. It's just done over top. It, it, it's just nobody admits it. Yeah. Or it's, hap- it's happening and they don't realize it. Because, yeah, because so many, so many layers are built on top of it that, you know, it, it, it's still there. You just don't see it anymore. And, th- I'm, and there are still a huge number of people who do program in Win32 but it's just not it's not sexy anymore. Yeah. Is the API still evolving? Are we adding new features to it? Oh, yeah, take a look. I mean, you can just, you know, diff your diff your header files between the Windows XP SDK and the Vista SDK and you'll see there's just all sorts of stuff going on. Win32 is far from dead. The difference is most programmers just don't don't need to They're touch it anymore. They're just not excited about it anymore. Well, they don't need to use it and they don't need to go that down down low anymore. Do they? Um, I guess it depends on what type of programmer you are. I mean, I'm sure there's. I mean, because they're you know because they're different. They're they're the the you know the the Visual Studio guys had the have the 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 personas right. There's the, right, the right, Einstein right. who's the the guy who you know basically the guy who reads my stuff, which is I I I'm programming you know to the metal. I actually can read the assembly output and understand it. Yeah, should byte number four hundred thirty-seven be a zero or a one? Right. It's a bit and number like, oh, anyway. I I want to do this because I want to I want to save a jump and 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 stay inside L two or something. And you know, yeah. like the really scary, you know, squeeze every last bit out of your program programmers. Guys who write but, to rewrite their device drivers for fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> I didn't say you did. I was just, I was just coming up with a ridiculous example. I'm sorry if I caused you any embarrassment. Yeah, that and, uh... was totally ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I w- ha ha. That that that's really funny. I mean, nobody would do that. Um, but but it turns out that those types of programmers are, while they're out there, they're they're not the bulk of the people doing computer programming nowadays. Right. People are, nowadays are doing their programming more with, with frameworks, you know, with, uh, where, where, where other people in the first category have done the heavy lifting for them. Yeah. Um, and it's more about rapid application development. Uh, Business you know, Because you really do not want to have to write 500 lines of code to call up a dialog box that takes a number. Right. Um, the people in the first category are happy to do it because they're like, oh, check out how beautifully I can format this number. But the <laughs> other people are just like, look, here's a form. There's the number. Just let me get my work done. Basically, the people in the second category, the, they have a goal that, and the computer program is merely a step towards achieving that goal and is not the goal itself. Yeah. 
Well, and the whole point of Visual Basic, going back to the beginning, was to get us out of the Win32 API plumbing or the Win16 API plumbing. Right, where you don't need a postgraduate degree in order to write a program. Well, that when I mess up popping up that dialog box, it doesn't hang the machine. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I, I can instead wedge up the machine some other, much more exciting way. But anyway, like rewriting um, your device drivers, for example. Yeah, like yeah, you know. I, well, re- remember when it was a normal thing if you were going to program the MFC that you had a uh, an ISA card like Periscope that would allow you to get a memory dump after Windows hung, so you'd have some idea what happened. I still have one of those. Do you still have a Periscope? Well, no, but it's a it's it's a it's it's something similar where you know it, it's it's a card with a button and it it issues an NMI and oh, it's all very exciting. In case of emergency, you can always just use a ballpoint pen. if you know exactly which pins to short (laughs) it's true i I thought you were talking about to write down what it says on the screen no no no. you pop open the case grab your ballpoint pen short the correct pins on the on the motherboard and then boom it's it you know the ballpoint pen is the the poor man's uh periscope card do you have any videotape of you doing that no, but there's a story that's going to come up um, about uh, how uh, I actually instructed somebody on how to do that over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and they were convinced I was just pulling their leg. Yeah. I, I have images of Father Mulcahy doing an emergency tracheotomy in a Jeep while being bombarded <laughs> by the North Koreans. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty much like that. They were, they, they were highly dubious that... Uh, they they thought it was some sort of crazy initiation, right? It's like you want me to do what? Uh huh. Yeah, right. Uh-huh, At some point yeah, here, you're going to tell I'm me I have to take it. off my clothes, right? <laughs> so, Raymond, is your favorite language C, C plus plus, Swedish, German, or Mandarin Chinese? Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put Swedish for now because it's just fun. It's not useful in a in a sort of you know practical. This will really improve my ability to communicate with the rest of the world because it's me and ten million of my closest friends. Yeah, and that's about it. I I come from Swedes. I have uh, uh, uncles and great great uncles and cousins thrice removed who. Like to sit around and drink glurg and go Fergie Bergie Dergie Fergie Bergie Fergie Derby. Yeah, but and that's just drunk. Know. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> they're not speaking Swedish. They're just drunk. <laughs> I I I hate to break it to you. If yeah. you tried to speak that, people would think you were drunk. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. So but, in terms of in in terms of you know Mandarin Chinese would certainly be the most useful language to learn. Yeah. But it's not as fun because if you speak, because, you know, if you walk down the street or you're hanging out with your friends and you just start talking in Swedish, they just double over in laughter. Yeah. They right. think it's the funniest thing ever. It's good for yucks. How long have you been speaking these three languages? Well, German I, I took up in high school. So it's been like over 20 years since I last formally studied German. But I've sort of been keeping it up on the side. But it is clearly atrophied in the meantime. Yeah. Swedish I picked up, I started picking up maybe three years ago, and it's, of the non-English, you know, aside from English, it's probably the one I have the best, the best facility with at this point. And yeah. uh, Mandarin Chinese is just a total joke. Ah. 
Okay. I I I can I can read maybe a half dozen characters and I feel proud of myself. Yeah. But you have some other hobbies like uh, knitting. You know, knitting has been exploding in the last few years as a hobby. Yeah, it's um, it's it's uh, it's become sort of. Uh, Although not, I mean, it's 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 always been sort of a women's hobby, and, right? Yeah, and, I was just going to say it's opened up to you know it's okay for a guy to knit now, right? Yeah, I'm no longer the token guy in our little <laughs> knitting group. But no, seriously, I've I heard about this. Uh, uh, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago, that you know, sales of yarn and knitting supplies has gone up by three hundred percent since the last you know in the last few years. Oh that yeah, it, yeah, it's it's it's. it's it's uh it's undergone a, a quite a revival it's it's become the hip new hobby you know younger people are picking it up right i'm not quite sure why but there you go so do you knit like uh pc cases and uh, monitor covers and things like this or do you actually stick with the traditional fare i i i stick to the traditional stuff but i i only knit for other people i don't i don't knit stuff for myself because it's just i don't know why it, it's just a thing hmm so I will, I will, I will knit if I'm if there's like okay, okay. Here's here's the person I'm making this item for. I think it's so that way because see the the thing is about when you when you make something by hand and you give it to somebody, they are so impressed that you made it. Yeah. And they are not, and if they are not experts in the craft, they won't see any of the mistakes. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Like I can, I can, I can mess up the little touch of the pattern. I have to do is a little repair job here, and I can see it. Right. I can spot every mistake and in, in and. But so if I if I if I kept it for myself, all I would see were the, would be the mistakes in it. If I give it to somebody, they're just happy and you know they think it's really sweet and they don't know what to look for. So they they think I did a fine job. I snowed them. <laughs> One day you're going to knit a perfect item and you'll keep it for yourself. Yeah, if um, if really froofy scarves were my thing. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. You know, you can knit a monitor cover or something like that. You know, something oh new. right, a monitor cover. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm, something I'm, useful. I'm sure Martha will help me out with that. <laughs> now you're also into cooking. I see. Do you do you watch Iron Chef? Iron Chef is cooking as spectacle. I love you it. You learn nothing from it, but it, it but is it's so it's cool. Just amazing. Now, which it's, one do you like better, the original or the American version? I have not seen much of the American version. The original is what I, I imprinted on it. It is absolutely insane. It is insane. And that, that guy, the chairman, he creeps me out a little bit. I don't know about you, but he's a little creepy to me. I, I, I like the fact that they leave him in Japanese and they, 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 don't, they don't dub him. Right. Just because it, it adds that extra air of... This guy is really whacked out. Well, <laughs> yes. And at the same time, he's so unimportant to the show, we don't need to translate him. Right. <laughs> so the, the American version has his uh, nephew, his American oh, that, that, nephew. That's their story, and they're sticking to it. As yeah. the chairman. Yeah, of course. And, uh, and Alt Alton Brown is the host. Alton Brown, geek hero cook. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's Alton, it, it, you know, like... For your, he is the ultimate cook for geeks. He is the geek cook. Yes, he rocks. Good eats. Because you know, it. most people when they're learning to cook aren't really interested in the chemical reaction happening inside the egg. Yeah. But Alton Brown will explain to you, and there is a category of people who will eat that up. Yep. I meant that figuratively. Both Richard and I are huge Alton Brown fans as well. Good stuff. 
Some of it is a little over the top. He's a little anal retentive, you know, and always wearing these latex gloves when handling, you know, it's like, come on. Nobody's going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what's great when you watch him making biscuits with his grandma. Right. <laughs> That's right. Because she is so not him. Right. And yeah. hers come out better. Yeah. And take the refuse and wrap it up in a neat little package and put it in a plastic bag and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> Double wrap. <laughs> Double wrap. Yeah. No, but I, I agree. And the props are just as, as entertaining as the uh, recipes are informative. So that's pretty cool. I was tempted cool. to go as a grain of rice one year for Halloween, having <laughs> seen the costume on Alt- Alton Brown's show. <laughs> I, I did not do it ultimately, but I'm holding it in reserve. I think the, the, one, uh, the one of the costumes that made me laugh the hardest was the one where he was demonstrating starches, so he's actually dressed as a plant, and then he slashes himself apart. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, I have not seen that one. That's very twisted. Yeah. yeah, that pretty much applies to most of Alton Brown's shows. Yeah. <laughs> did you see his, what was it, the road trip one he did? What was it called? Uh, he did like three or four episodes of this one-hour show where he set across country on a motorcycle to find, you know, the the, the roadside restaurant and... Uh, Feasting on asphalt. That's what it was. Feasting on asphalt. I have not seen that one. He ends up wrecking his motorcycle and breaking an arm in the third episode. That pretty much put the kibosh on the whole series, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's not a that's not necessarily the, the the greatest move there. No, but you have to, you know, he he's willing to do it for his art. So, Raymond, what's uh, what's next for you? Another book? Uh, just going to keep doing what you're doing? What what's cool and fun that you're working on now? Uh, right now, I'm I'm working on sleeping. <laughs> it's really it's really nice. It's nice to come back to. <laughs> you know, because, you know, you go to college and then you forget about this whole sleeping thing. Right. And then, you know, you, you go to work and, you know, if you work in a tech industry, of course, you're you're always busy and working on shipping Windows Vista. And now, you know, it's done. I Oh, it's great. You know, Saturday afternoon, it's like, oh, you know, it's pretty quiet here. I think I'll take a nap. Are there any Easter eggs in Vista? No Easter eggs. That's the rule. What do you mean that's the rule? That's That's been the rule since, like, Windows 2000. Yes, but no they're always Easter eggs, aren't they? Well, if there if there are, I take them out. <laughs> if, if you tell me where they are, I will rip them out. Is it your job to get rid of bad code in general? No, just bad code in particular. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess I guess I hear what you're saying or not saying. <laughs> Well, very good. So, so I can't believe you set me up that way. So you really don't want to uh, talk about anything that you're working on now? I don't even know what I'm working on now. We're sort of in the in-between phase. I see. Right. Okay. There you go. So, you know, everybody out there listening to me, go and buy a copy of Vista. It's pretty cool. All right. Well, Raymond, thank you very much for being on the show. It was a huge honor for me and, and I'm sure for Richard as well to have you here. And thank you again. Oh, it was my pleasure. And, uh, man, you kept me in stitches for an hour. That's not an easy thing to do. Well, you know, I, I do what I can. You know, my, my initial career as stand-up sort of petered out. So it turns, it turns out you can make more money writing software than you can doing stand-up. <laughs> All right, Raymond. Thanks for being on the show. All right. And we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. Dotnet Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Hard, then